It is a joy to see you all again this morning. I pray that you all are enjoying uh, the, the build-up to Christmas. And even just in the songs that we sang this morning, the song we heard sung to us, it is a reminder of just how unique this time of year is for everyone, both believers and unbelievers alike. There is a certain magic to Christmas season, isn't there? That magic is, of course, aided by an entire month of build-up, a month in which we hear those familiar songs being sung, a month in which we, we hold to various traditions of, of putting up Christmas trees, putting up Christmas lights, buying gifts, driving around with our family and loved ones, a time in which we hear so many of those songs speak of, of really unbelievable promises. I don't know about you, but I'm always taken aback as I go around this time of year and as I hear on the radio, as I hear over the intercom of stores, these songs about the lordship of Christ being celebrated and being sung, of course, by people who hold no faith in Jesus, yet people who still want that feeling. They want that magic. They want that inspiration. And they, I think like most of us, understand there's something different about this time of year that, that makes that anticipation, that makes that hope somehow more palpable, somehow more real to every single one of us. And so we, like so many others, enjoy that buildup of the Christmas season. And it builds and it builds and it builds until Christmas Day comes, which is less than a week away. And as glorious as Christmas Day is, as beautiful as it can be, let's face it, it never can live up to all that hype, can it? I mean, maybe for some of you kids, it does live up to that hype. But as you grow older, of course, you can easily start seeing it as just a normal holiday, another day to, to get gifts, and as you celebrate Christmas, it's another day in which you're immediately looking ahead to the next year. Or if you're like me, you're immediately looking ahead and thinking, oh, i got to take down all those Christmas lights. And as you take down those Christmas lights, as you pack everything away in a way that you hope preserves them for next year, you, of course, are quick to move on from that magic. And all that anticipation, all that hope, all that joy can very quickly seep away and so you find yourself back in our culture, back in our society that's acting as if, well, nothing's happened, nothing's changed, because for most people, nothing has changed. What is so glorious about Christmas is not how our culture celebrates it, but what's so glorious is, is what is declared, as Pastor Jeremy already mentioned, in passages like Isaiah 9. What is so glorious is that as, as beautiful as all those traditions are that we have, as, as beautiful as those Christmas carols are, they pale in comparison the language that Isaiah uses. As beautiful as that Christmas light is that we behold on, on the outside of homes during this year, they all pale in comparison to the light of Jesus Christ. That long-awaited light that was prophesied of in Isaiah 9. A light that brought with it the most improbable of promises. Yet a light that was brought about by the most improbable of kings. And a light that continues to shine brighter and brighter and brighter and will shine brighter and brighter throughout all eternity, regardless of how dark our world might seem. As we look at the text today, I pray that all of us might, might regain a sense of that childlike wonder we all once had for Christmas. I pray that we hear the words of Isaiah 9 with, with fresh ears and understand just how shocking of a message this is. That we understand how amazing these promises are, that we understand how incredible Christ is, and that we might all walk away from here this morning with a newfound appreciation of those promises, a newfound appreciation of Jesus, and a newfound reminder of the fact that light still shines bright. And while many of these promises have been fulfilled, we still are waiting for more. 
for his kingdom will only grow greater, his love will only grow sweeter. And so as we prepare to celebrate that and think of those things, let us begin again once in prayer, and we'll dig back into Isaiah chapter 9. Bow your heads in prayer with me. Father in heaven, it is such a joy to explore Isaiah 9. For we live in a dark world, a world that is perhaps best represented by Isaiah 8. A world that is full of chaos, a world that seems full of darkness. In that darkness, it's easy to lose sight of the light that is promised. And so, God, I pray that this morning you cause that light to shine more brightly in our eye. Might once again be taken aback to to feeling that that sense of, of awe and wonder over these promises as this original audience must have felt. Might once again see how unique Christ is in fulfilling all these promises. And as we continue to wait to celebrate Christmas in a week, let us, in an even more real fashion, continue to wait for the day of Christ's return. For it is only when he returns, when all these promises will be completely fulfilled, when we will see him face to face, God. Cause us to see his face more clearly this morning. Cause us to see your glory. And cause us to see it by the light of your word. Holy Spirit, speak powerfully through your word this morning. Remove all distractions from us. Bring many to a saving faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, today. And draw us who are already saved closer together as a family, as servants of the King whose birth we so eagerly await to celebrate on Christmas and whose return we eagerly anticipate now. Bless our time now, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned already, as we look at Isaiah 9, 1-7, through we'll be examining that promise of light the source of the light, and ultimately the expansion of that light. We begin with the first surprise, which is a promise of light, a promise we'll see in the first five verses of our text. Promises that speak both to a a promise of restoration or of joy and, and a promise of peace. We pick it up with the first promise, that promise of joy, in verses one through three. Follow along with me once again where we find these words. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. That's with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Oftentimes we're going to skip ahead to the next few verses that speak of the coming king who will bring about the fulfillment of these verses. But we can't skip ahead because if we do, we miss just how improbable this promise is from the beginning. For as Isaiah promises this future day of joy, we have to recall who is receiving this promise and how impossible the idea of celebration must have sounded in the original context. We see that audience listed out geographically in these first couple of verses. For Isaiah the prophet speaks of the land of of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. He speaks of that that place, the way of the sea, Galilee of the Gentiles, places that, that probably mean fairly little to all of us, unless you are geographical experts of the Middle East. But in the original audience, these regions were actually quite significant. For you see, these nations or these tribes filled the most northern part of the nation of Israel. 
Now again, that might not sound that significant to you. But if you lived in the most northern area of Israel, back in the day of Isaiah, and if you lived in that land particularly, in a day when the Assyrian Empire is on the rise and when they're marching towards Israel, and when you lived in a day in which you understood that the entry point, the doormat into Israel, is your hometown, well, you start realizing why it's significant where you live. For it's here in Naphtali. It's here in Zebulun that the Assyrian Empire would have entered into the, the Promised Land. This was the natural entrance that every single invading army would take. Which meant, of course, this was the first place to feel the full force of a wicked empire falling upon them. And while the people in the southern lands could scramble and try to come up with, with new peace treaties to try to, to appease the Assyrians, something which they all did, the people in the north had no chance. They were cannon fodder. They were there to buy the people of the south time. And as history continued to move forward, even shortly after Isaiah 9, it was in these lands that the Assyrian Empire, in fact, entered. And as they entered, the Assyrians did what the Assyrians always did, would do. They killed a lot of people. They took away the nobles, the leaders, the wealthy. They drove them off to a foreign land, and in their place, they brought in foreigners. And in that process might not sound terrible to some of you, particularly if you think, well, maybe if I'm one of the people that survives and I'm allowed to stay home, well, that's okay. The reality was that there was a brutal treatment. Uh, for, for imagine this foreign army invading your home, taking away your leaders and saying, it's okay, you can stay here, but we're just going to now fill all those positions of leadership with people that already like us. In this process, you lose your entire identity. You are still living in the promised land, but there's nothing Jewish about it. There's nothing Israeli about it. There's nothing that speaks of Yahweh's glory. There's only that which speaks of the glory of the Assyrians, of those who have taken your loved ones captive. It would be as if, as if a burglar came into your house tonight, uh, took away half your family, but said, it's okay, you can stay, but I have my own family, I'm moving in, and, and we're going to have our own traditions, and you're going to pay rent and really, life's going to be quite miserable for you. It, it's similar. You are still at home, but it's not your home anymore. And in history, this process was so thorough in these northern lands that all semblance of Jewish identity was completely lost forever. So much so that it became known more as Galilee of the Gentiles, of the nations. This was a place where everyone collected themselves. This was, over time then, Really a byword that stood for destruction. That stood for a place where, where identity is lost. That stood for a place where the promises of God apparently fell short. Because there was no more promised land. There was no more identity. There was certainly no more blessing. And yet, and yet Isaiah says, in this dark land, someday a light will come. Israeli, someday this event will happen that will cause the darkness to be removed, that will bring the individuals back to the nation, and that will inspire, in verse 3, a, a party, a great celebration for these events that transpire result in them celebrating as if it is the day of harvest. Isaiah uses language that, that would have been familiar to anyone in an, in an agricultural society. It's, it's a language that speaks to an event that they all experienced once upon a time, a time in which they still had their own land, 
a time in which they didn't have to ship their crop off to the Assyrian Empire, a time in which they were able to just enjoy one another. If you read through the Old Testament, you read of the celebrations they had at harvest. Celebrations that were commanded by God for that harvest was a representation of his goodness, of his provision. And for a people who had all of that taken away from them, there was perhaps no more beautiful imagery than this. Some of that beauty is lost in our own culture because most of us aren't farmers, but we can appreciate this, can't we? It's the picture of of being on the winning team celebrating the championship in the locker room afterwards. It's the picture of finally getting that raise that you were so desperate to get. It's it's the picture of a kid on Christmas morning. Seeing the the presents under the glow of the Christmas tree and, and believing that all is right in the world. For I finally got the gifts that I was so eagerly waiting to get. It's a joyful moment. And as we picture this sort of joy, we ought to imagine our own lives and think, what sort of of event would make me this happy? What is the happiest moment of your life? This really is that imagery. And it's a great promise, but again, consider who's hearing this promise. Consider how joyless of a context this is given in. And taken by itself, then, well, this promise might seem even a little harsh, won't it? For they're getting killed by Assyrians. They're getting their land taken from them. But Isaiah's coming in and saying, no, no, don't worry. It's going to get better. Okay, Isaiah, thanks. I don't know how this could happen, but but still, here's this this strange promise. And yet, as strange as it is, it, it just gets even more strange, even more improbable for as you continue into verse 4 and 5, you see this, this second promise and really the cause of this rejoicing. And that second promise isn't just of, of joy, of celebration. It's, it's a celebration of unending peace. You read again in verse 4 and 5. 4, this is why you rejoice. For you shall break the yoke of their burdens and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Here's why you're going to celebrate Israel. Here's what's so great. Because the Assyrians will be defeated. Even as we just sung in in some of those Christmas carols, here is this language of all oppression coming to an end. As he speaks of this future day of peace, once again the prophet uses language that should have been familiar to these people. For as he tries to draw a comparison of what this future peace will be like, Isaiah speaks of that that battle at Midian. This will be just like it was at the battle of Midian, Israelites. And you all remember the battle at Midian, right? No, probably not. As a result, again, the language loses its beauty, it loses its impact, but... But if you read back in the book of Judges, you can see why this, why this battle was so glorious. We don't have time to read Judges 6 through 8 this morning. But it's a story that many of you heard as children, for it's the story of Gideon. You remember Gideon? That incredibly unlikely hero? Gideon, who is in the process of hiding out from the enemy, yet is called out as a brave warrior by God. Gideon, who is taken by God and used to lead the the military of God's people used against the Midianites. In the story in Judges 6-8, through you can read the tale of, of Gideon being used by God to lead not a great military against the Midianites, 
but lead a, a group of people that God reduces down to 300. Maybe that's jogging your memory. God reduces the military. He wants it to be as small as possible so that he gets all the glory. God reduces the military under the hand of Gideon, and then God miraculously delivers the people from their enemies, brings this miraculous defeat in which they barely even have to fight. And he does so ultimately at this battle of Midian, a a battle that ultimately brings their own deliverance. We read the end results of that in Judges 8, verse 28. At the end of the story, we read, Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. It's a beautiful picture of peace. It's, it's a beautiful reminder of, of the ways that God has worked miraculously for his people in the past. And as such, as the people of Israel look ahead to this future light that will somehow bring them peace, they're going to have at least a, a concept of what Isaiah is speaking of. They know that God works miraculously. They know that God can bring victory. And yet as glorious as all those other victories have been, even as glorious as the battle at Midian was, those Israelites would have also understood the inevitable letdown that has come always after those victories. For even if you continue to read in Judges 8, in a very anticlimactic fashion in Judges 8, just a few verses later in verse 33, we read the eventual end. It says, it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Barath their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side. This is really the story of Israel time and time again, isn't it? God chooses them. God miraculously provides for them. They sin against God so they're delivered into captivity. But God miraculously saves them. And they rejoice and they celebrate And then a couple days pass by and they forget who God is. And they go back to the gods of the nations. And as a result, they're swept back up into this endless cycle of victory, followed by defeat, followed by captivity, followed by rescue, followed by victory, followed by so on and so forth. And so as we come back to Isaiah 9, and as we read in verse 4 that this future day of peace will be like the day of Midian, You can imagine that the the mindset of the readers must have been, well, yeah, but but that didn't even last that long, Isaiah. And it's with that understanding in mind that you can perhaps understand why Isaiah adds the second point regarding this peace. For this peace, while it is vaguely familiar, is ultimately unique. For we read in verse 5 of Isaiah 9 that every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. This is a peace that the people of Israel had never seen before. For this is a peace that doesn't just mean the end of Assyria or the end of Babylon or the end of Rome after that. It's a peace that means all oppression is removed for all eternity. So much so that there's not even the, the threat of warfare for these things like the boots worn into battle, the cloaks that are, had been rolled in blood. They're all fuel for the fire. There's no need for weapons. There's no need for a defense budget an incredible image, one that is not entirely unique to Isaiah, for if you read through all the prophets, you see the same sort of eternal peace prophesied of. Another famous place where we find that is in the prophet of Micah. Micah chapter 4. We read of this future day where Micah says, he, God, will judge between many peoples and render nations from mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares. 
their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. This was always the promise of the prophets. This promise of a future day in which there will be no more war, no more attack, no more fear. And it's hard enough for us to imagine, but again, put yourself in the shoes of those ancient Israelites. It is downright impossible to imagine this, this level of peace. And if you pay attention at all to politics in the Middle East today, you understand how improbable this still sounds. For Israel's pretty much always been surrounded by people that just want to see them dead. It's always been their position. And, and those people in the ancient world included people like the Assyrian Empire. And anytime you have a word like empire added to your identity, you know you're quite the threat. And Assyria wasn't the only empire that stood against them. You have the Babylonian Empire. You have the Roman Empire ultimately after you. And so at no point in time really, at least for any extended amount of time, at no point in time could the people of God possibly imagine what it would be like to live in a world in which there were no threats. In which there wasn't someone on their way slowly across the desert headed for their destruction. And yet this is exactly what this light is said to ultimately bring. Again, it's, it's an incredible image and one that would be hard for the people of Israel to imagine, but let's be honest. It's one that most of us are probably a bit too cynical to believe ourselves, isn't it? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of you who own guns in here, much less how many of you have a gun in here right now. <laughs> the laughter makes some people nervous. <laughs> but we live in a world in which many of us, many of us in this room, are heavily armed, at least back home. Why? Why would we, why would we have that? Why would we ever feel the need to keep a weapon where we live? Well, this question sounds ridiculous in this part of the country, doesn't it? We, we have that to protect ourselves, to protect our loved ones, because we know we live in a world in which there are real threats. We live in a world in which there's always that underlying tension where we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what level of chaos will erupt with the next news headline. And so we naturally assume that, that it's right and it's wise to always be ready to go to war. That's the culture we grow up in. Can you imagine then living under a government that you trust so much that you willing, willingly hand your guns over to? Can you imagine that? Having a president that says, hey, everyone bring your guns to the White House today and you say, oh right, I trust you this much. No. It would be a revolution on our hands, wouldn't there? Because we don't trust man. We don't trust our rulers. We don't trust the world in which we live in because the world is untrustworthy. We grow up in this culture of violence. In this culture in which we assume we will have to defend ourselves. Perhaps even with violence someday. And so if we're honest with ourselves, even when we read the language of Isaiah 9. When we read the language of Micah 4 that speaks of, of beating these things into plowshares. We can reduce that to hippie talk. To the stuff of fairy tales. For we know how the world really works. We know violence is, is simply part of life. 
And yet as we read Isaiah 9, we realize no. Actually, it's not. He's not in the end. For there will be this future in which even the most war-plagued nations in the world will have no need of weapons of any kind. And it is, of course, at this point of the story that I think all of us would rightly share a bit of doubt when it comes to Isaiah 9. And honestly, it's at this point in time when most of the culture might use this language of hope, use this language of peace, but if they're honest, they say, yeah, it sounds great, but, but who on earth could possibly make this happen? Who could be so powerful as to not just defeat Assyria, but defeat all those other empires? Who could be so great and majestic so as to strike fear in the hearts of all enemies? I certainly couldn't do it. And I don't mean to be offensive, but when I look out on this crowd, I don't think any of you can do it. So who on earth could do it? If even the greatest empires in the history of the world inevitably fail and falter, well, where, where does Isaiah get, get this idea that someday all of it will be made right? The reality is that this story does sound ludicrous. And the world is right to scoff at us if we end the message at world peace and harmony. For this image is impossible until, until you see the source. Until you see who brings this light, until you see who brings this peace, until you see who brings this new kingdom. For having painted this unbelievably beautiful picture of the future, Isaiah in chapter 9 verse 6 reveals the most shocking detail presented yet in our text. For he shows us who the source of this light ultimately will be. And we read that in Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6, again, thinking back to the amount of violence in that world, thinking back to how improbable these words were, consider the shock of this verse. Four, here's how it's going to happen, Israelites. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The source of world peace, the source of the defeat of the most violent empire in the history of humanity, the one who will bring the end to all war is a kid. A child. Now, of course, we will see how this is no ordinary child. We will see how, how he is infinitely unique. But lest we miss the shock of the statement, I, I, I want us to dwell here for a moment. For this goes against everything every single one of us would expect. Everything. We assume naturally that to defeat the bully, we need a bully. We just need a bigger bully. To defeat the military, we need a bigger military. To defeat the terrorists, we have to strike them at home. Yet what Isaiah presents to us, as pastor and theologian Ray Ortland says, is that God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. 
child born in the most lowly of circumstances, the most unpredictable birthplace. A child that is both fully God but fully man. But a child nonetheless. Now again, this language is so familiar to us, we we lose sight of how beautiful this imagery must have been to the people of Israel. For as improbable as this source must have been, it was amazingly exactly what God had always promised them, wasn't it? For while they did not realize it, they were always looking for a child. For it was a child that was promised back in Genesis 3, wasn't it? In response to the fall, God tells Adam and Eve that from your seed will come the one that will crush the head of the serpent. They're always looking for that deliverer. They just didn't understand what he would look like. Even in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet speaks of that symbolism of children. We spoke of that last week. They were always looking for some child. And we come to Isaiah 9, 6 and we say, here he is. Here's the kid you've been looking for. But as I already mentioned, this child, as vulnerable as he was, was no mere ordinary child. He was God. He is God. And with him he carries with him the most glorious resume, the most glorious characteristics that are laid out here in verse 6. We see those characteristics really begin after this declaration. When Isaiah says, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Here is the king you've been waiting for, Israel. A king that is marked by, by unparalleled wisdom. Wisdom that was no doubt so longed for, for at the time these people were ruled by foolish kings. We talked briefly of King Ahaz last week, the king that ruled in the south in Judah. King Ahaz who was terrified of Assyria and therefore just swung in whatever direction Assyria wanted him to swing. And the nation of Israel, they were ruled by an equally foolish king who wanted to to do anything to preserve himself and so the Israelites were so frustrated that they had him assassinated because they thought, well, maybe a new king will be wise enough to deliver us. But of course... Every king falls short. But this king, this child, would have the wisdom of God at his fingertips. And as hard as that is to imagine, we see it personified in the ministry of Christ, don't we? For you read through the ministry of Christ and you see even as a child, he had this wisdom that was unparalleled. You read of the account in in Luke chapter 2 when he's left at the temple. Remember, his parents lose him for a few days and they go back and they find that that here is this child, Jesus, who's speaking in a way that that leaves his audience astounded for they've never heard anyone ask such brilliant questions, show such brilliant understanding. That same wisdom is personified later on in his ministry when he stumps the religious leaders of his day time and time again. These leaders who had trained their entire lives could never trap Jesus could never ask him a question that would somehow prove the lack of wisdom he dealt with. No. With a word, Jesus is able to demonstrate that the most intelligent people of his day were fools compared to him. That is the wisdom of Christ. That is the wisdom that this new king would bring with him. Wisdom, no doubt, that would have been essential to rule to the type of kingdom that Isaiah is prophesying. As glorious as that wisdom is, however, it is nothing if it does not have the power that is needed to to really execute his wisdom. 
But we see that power is also unparalleled. That power is limitless for the second title after a wonderful counselor is mighty God. That God whose power is infinite, it's limitless. The power of God that is put on display so powerfully throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorite passages that speak of that power is Isaiah 40. In fact, I, I encourage you to turn over to Isaiah 40. For we see that, that power detailed, described. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, he says of God and his power, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Assyria was impressive, but God blows on them and they're they're no more. Babylon was impressive, but no more impressive than, than just a seedling that God planted in the ground only to destroy later on. God's power was infinite. Power not just over government, but over heaven and earth. How on earth could anyone born in this world demonstrate that level of power? Well, it's a good question you ask. And yet, as improbable as it is, you read through the the ministry of Jesus and you see that unbelievable power of God at the fingertips of that long-awaited Messiah. Power that was so much more impressive than just the power of a political ruler, but power that touches on the spiritual realm even. For you read in many accounts in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but in particular here in Mark chapter 4, one brief picture of this power. In Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, we read, On that day when evening came, he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep at the cushion. They woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down. And they became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Oftentimes we forget how terrifying this must have been to behold as a disciple. We read the miracles and we think, oh how neat. How cool it must have been to see Jesus calm a storm. It wasn't cool, it was terrifying. Because no one could do that. Caesar over Rome had no authority over a thunderstorm. But this Jesus that no one knows about can speak to the sea that is about to envelop the disciples, speak to a storm that has them believing they are about to die, and in that second, the storm ceases. Why? Because it has to. Because Jesus is God. Because he has the power of God, the authority of God. Because he's the king, not just over some meager empire. He's the king of creation. It's a glorious picture. And yet even then, it is an incomplete picture for if God was just, or if Jesus was just infinitely wise and infinitely powerful, well, our reaction still might be to be a a bit afraid of him, wouldn't it? But as Isaiah speaks further of this future king, we see the next unbelievable characteristic of this king. For not only is he the wonderful counselor, not only is he mighty God, but he is declared 
eternal Father. Eternal Father. This language might trip some of us up initially because well, we know Jesus is the Son of God, so how can he also be described as the Father? And I, I think the point Isaiah here is making is not meant to bleed or blend in imagery of the Trinity. He's speaking of the way that Jesus rules. He's speaking specifically of the way that Jesus loves the people in his kingdom. And yet again, in a day and age where the kings cared nothing for the common man, you can imagine how unreal this language must have sounded. That this one with limitless wisdom, with limitless power, cares about you? He loves you in the way that a father would love his child? I mean, that seems too good to be true, and yet when we read in the gospel accounts, what do we see? Well, we see that tenderness of, of Jesus given to his disciples. We see that, that gentleness on display time and time again. And we read in passages like John 13, verse 1, as Jesus approaches his crucifixion, as he approaches it at the side of the disciples whom he knew would betray him and run the second they had a chance, we read, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, and that he would depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his, his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus never relented in the gentleness given to his people. Jesus always showed love and patience. And of course, he rebuked them at times, but it was the rebuke a, a father gives to his child when the child's endangering their own safety. And we're told in Isaiah that this is the type of rule this future king would give, this love that is inexhaustible. It's a love that I think a, a lot of us fail to appreciate day and age, don't we? We get caught up in our own sins, and we can convince ourselves that God is up in heaven just eternally disappointed in us, shaking our head at us, asking, how could you do this again? And we assume that as we grow older and more aware of our sin, that somehow makes us more distant from God, but cannot be further from the truth. For Jesus is our loving Father, and not just for the moment, for all eternity. As Charles Spurgeon says in response to this concept, there is no unfathering of Christ, just as there is no unchilding of us. The relationship is set. It is permanent. And it's a relationship not just with some passing ruler, but with the king of all creation. The king who will bring peace, the king who has infinite wisdom, the king who has infinite power, loves you. Loves you enough to die on the cross for you. There's no greater love than that. And that's the love of this king. What an incredible thought. And yet as incredible as it is, it still is not the end of his description. For having declared him to be this wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, Isaiah finally says he is the prince of peace. Prince of peace. Peace, this speaks to his rule, this speaks to the work that he accomplishes, that work of reconciliation, that which was promised earlier in Isaiah 9. It comes as a result of his hand, this king's good work. He brings peace to those who were formerly at war with him, with God. And he does this, of course, by the work on the cross. This theme of peace 
is one that Jesus himself spoke of time and time again in the book of John. We find many examples of this, but one of them is found in John 14. Once again there, as, John comforts his, or as Jesus comforts his disciples, he says this in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The reason why Micah in chapter 4 is able to say that there will be no one to give us fear, the reason why he's able to say that someday all peace will be brought is because he understood, as best he could, that someday a king would come who would be this king of peace. And it is that peace that Jesus speaks of time and time again. It's that peace that the angels declare on high at his birth, isn't it? It's the peace that Jesus gives us between God and man and his death, burial, and resurrection. And it is a peace that characterizes all that he accomplishes for his people. Believer, do you, do you understand this is your king? Do you see how lucky you are? How blessed we are. How often we put our hope in fallen politicians in our world. How often we think in order to get ahead in life, we need a guy like that, we need a girl like that, and inevitably, so oftentimes, we point to people that could be no no further different from God. And we think they'll get things done. No, believer. No, our king is so infinitely more beautiful, is infinitely greater in his power, infinitely greater in his wisdom, infinitely greater in his love, infinitely greater in his ability to bring reconciliation. For he brings not just a passing victory, but he brings eternal peace. It's a beautiful concept to consider again. And yet again, like so many glorious moments, we can look back on this rule and we can think, what what a great moment, but over time, in our cynical minds, we begin to assume that that rule must inevitably start falling apart. For again, every empire, as great as it is, falters. Every power that looks untouchable in the moment eventually dies and falls short. Every light fades. But that's where the best part of the story comes in, isn't it? For regarding this source of light, regarding this great gift of life, we read finally in verse 7 that his light never fades. It expands for all eternity. If we read of this rule in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The birth of Christ was just the beginning. The star over the manger was just the beginning. It just grows brighter. His kingdom, we are told, is limitless, without borders. This kingdom, as we read of it in verse 7, is is such a beautiful picture both of God's faithfulness as as well as his greatness, isn't it? The faithfulness of God is clearly emphasized, for as Isaiah speaks of it, he speaks of the throne of David. Why would Isaiah do that? What does David have to do with this? Well, we know. 
The reason why David's name is brought in is because of what God had promised David back in 2 Samuel 7. For God had promised David by his faithful word that he would cause his lineage to bring about this final king. And so Isaiah is just reminding us, see people, this is nothing new. This is what God always said would happen and this is what he does. It's a picture of that faithfulness, but it's also a picture of his greatness. Again, it's, it's a picture of a kingdom that is without borders. It's a future that somehow gets better every moment. At no point in time in our lives, in eternity, at no point in time in the kingdom of heaven will we be able to say, yeah, I think I've seen all of it. I think I've experienced all there is to experience here in this, this kingdom. No, there's, there's a new place to explore every day. There's a new joyful experience that we can have every second. The goodness of God is inexhaustible. The joy we'll experience there is inexhaustible because he is that great, because his kingdom is that beautiful. This fact of his ever-increasing kingdom speaks again to the idea that this isn't just some historical event. This is something that has happened and still happens and will continue to happen. We still await this day. We still await to enter into that kingdom and its fulfillment. As we do this, we again can get caught up in our own worldly pressures, our own worldly frustration, and begin to doubt, and yet it's at that point of doubt that Isaiah so emphatically tells us and reminds us why we can be so confident this will happen. The reason is found there at the end of our text. The reason why the Christmas light will expand, the reason why his kingdom will succeed, is because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Here is the most glorious aspect of this promise. It doesn't rest on you. It doesn't rest on how obedient you are. It doesn't rest on how impressive we are as his people. It doesn't rest on the political climate. It doesn't rest on our financial situations, on the career paths we take. It rests on nothing but the zeal of the infinite creator and ruler of all of creation. And if God says he will do it, it's going to get done. The prophet Isaiah emphasizes this so frequently. He says it just as powerfully later on in Isaiah chapter 49. There God, speaking of his will, says this. In Isaiah chapter 49, verses 9 through 10, he says, Oh no, I went to the wrong one. Isaiah speaks time and time again of the fact that God's sovereignty cannot be thwarted. And he says this in Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. I can't find the right passage in a, a sermon. Praise God for the fact that it's not my wisdom that dictates the success of God. It's the wisdom of God. And if God says he will make his kingdom expand, then God's kingdom will expand. And this is a word both of great comfort to us who are but of great warning to those who reject him, isn't it? For it's a reminder that these promises of Isaiah, 4, of Isaiah 9 will come to fruition. 
And for the people in Israel, for the people of God's kingdom, this means our life. For the people outside, this means judgment. And in light of all of these things, as we come to the end of Isaiah 9 and 7, and as we take a step back and appreciate where we sit in relation to this text, in relation to our own Christmas holiday coming up, we see the need to understand and appreciate what Isaiah here is promising. For if you are here this morning and you do not yet know Jesus, the call of Isaiah 8 and the call of Isaiah 9 is still the same. It's, it's understand your need. Understand where you stand outside of God. For you stand in a world of darkness. Your only need is the need of Jesus Christ, the King that can bring you reconciliation. And so unbeliever, please see that offer regardless of how sinful you've been, regardless of how much hatred you've had stored up in your heart against God, the offer of the gospel is is for you this morning. All you must do is simply repent and believe in Jesus. As I say every week, please do not hesitate in doing this. Ask me questions out in the lobby if you have any. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we read this text and, and as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, Let us truly take this week to rejoice. And let us rejoice not not because of the gifts we get, not because of the gifts we we give. Let's not rejoice just because we know it's what we're supposed to do this time of year. But let's rejoice because we know that our hope doesn't rest in something as, as passing as one holiday. Let's rejoice because we know our hope does not rest and our current job status, and how healthy our marriage is, and how great our kids are doing, and how good we feel physically. And let's not certainly rest because we we think the world is somehow doing better than we expected. But let, let us rejoice and rest because regardless of how dark this world is, God promises us that his king will bring light. Because as confused as we might feel, our king is infinitely wise. Because of how chaotic our life might seem, our king will bring peace. We know this because our king has already been born and because God has promised he will return and if God has declared it, it will happen. And so let us rejoice in that, believer. Let us do that with great joy and great peace. Always remembering that as great as the story is, as we look back at the birth of Jesus, it will only get better from here. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, what an unbelievable picture this is of your love. What an unbelievable picture this is of your son Jesus. God, might we never be guilty of being outdone in how joyful we are this time of year. But might we as your people be the loudest in our celebration, knowing that we have the most to celebrate. God, we praise you for the fact that the success of your kingdom does not rest on our shoulders, but it rests on the shoulders of your chosen king, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we praise you for the fact that having been born as promised, you lived a perfectly righteous life that we could never live, that you accepted the punishment of our sins on our shoulders, that you defeated not just some earthly ruler, but you defeated death. And in its place, you offer us life. Might we rejoice in that fact today, Jesus. Might we speak of that joy and that reconciliation that is offered to others. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.